Time Slingers, my time travel novel is out now on Amazon.com. What inspired me to write it? Why are people calling it interesting, fast pace and trailblazing? We'll talk about that without spoilers. What's up, Story Geeks? It's Jay Shear. On today's podcast, Daryl Smith and our live Time Slingers launch party audience interview me about Time Slingers. This is a special release one-time episode, but we are in the middle of our X-Men series, so be sure to check out last week's episode on every X-Men movie ranked. Coming up next week, Dark Phoenix. We're going to dig deeper into Dark Phoenix, the last the movies before Disney takes over. Don't miss out on future episodes or any upcoming series. We have a Disney series coming up, which should be really great. Subscribe for free on your preferred podcast provider. One other really quick note before we jump in. This episode was not recorded in studio. It was recorded off-site with a live audience. So the audio quality is quite a bit different than what you might expect from the Story Geeks podcast. But we really enjoyed the live audience. So stay tuned for more live events in the future. Thanks for listening in. The Story Geeks podcast is produced by the Reclamation Society. Let's dig deeper into the book that Nathan Sheck and I wrote. Let's dig deeper into Time Slingers. Now recording. You guys are all on microphones. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, it won't pick you up that well, but if you want to yeah. shout and try, that's fine. Might, might as well, yeah. Um, yeah, so we've got a few questions here for Jay, and then we'll open it up for a Q&A time at the end as well. With uh, I've got some little prizes for that, so you'll want to ask questions. Daryl's going to throw things at you, basically. I am, but in a joyful way. <laughs> in a joyful way. Yes. And by the way, I've been, I've been sick all week, so I've been coughing. So I might cough through this. If I do, I apologize. But just to add a little subtext to it, if I cough, assume it means I think he's lying. <laughs> and that'll yeah. make it more fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's dive into our questions. You guys had a Writer's Digest judge who reviewed Time Slingers, and he called it trailblazing, and said that the novel has a place in literary history, Yeah, which is pretty sweet. And a lot of people are calling it innovative. So what is the story behind you and Nathan creating Time Slingers? What inspired it? Talk about the journey. Did it change over time? Yeah, for sure it did. And so you had to go all the way back to 2005. Uh, and this is Nathan, by the way. Nathan is the co-author and the illustrator of the works uh, of Time Slingers. Um, started in 2005. So we're going back pretty far at this point in time. I had a full-time job, and I could not, for the life of me, get a novel finished. Right? Because you're just like, you're working 9 to 5, or 9 to 6, or 9 to 7, and suddenly you're getting home, and you're like, I'm exhausted. I'll put, a, get to put together a few words, but it's hard. Um, so I partnered with Nathan, and I said, I need some accountability for you and I to do this together, right? If we do it together, we'll work on it harder, we'll get farther with it. And the idea we landed on was that it would be like classic newspaper serials. So you remember back in the day, when I was a real young kid, every week in the newspaper, there used to be a new serial story. There used to be a new part of the story come out. And usually it would come with like an illustration and then the part of the story, and it would continue the story next week, end on a cliffhanger, all that kind of stuff. So the idea was that we would take that, but use a blog to do the same functional idea, right? That, and this was 2005, <laughs> so this is a long time ago when blogs were like a really cool thing. I don't, they're still cool, but they not, pretty not, cool. not the same. Um, and so I when think we I had one at the time. Did you have one I at the time? So. What was yours about? Music. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Not geek stuff. I can't believe it. Um, so each installment 
So you, when you read Time Slingers, you read it in episodes, and the episodes are broken into installments. There's usually three or four installments per episode. Each of the, each of the original installments was between 1,500 and 2,000 words. So they were a lot longer, right? But uh, so it solved two problems for us. One was the smaller segments, one at a time, and two, we were trying to modernize old newspaper serials, right? So we're just trying to solve some problems. But then smartphones came out, right? And then that kind of revolution, revolutionized everything again because we, when we had smartphones, what we realized was we had a new problem on our hands, and that was that people were on mobile and they were skimming. And so we said, okay, well now what are we gonna do? So in 2008, this is after like about a year after the smartphones started to become real popular. I believe iPhone was 2007, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you can look me up and, and tell me if that's wrong, but I think it's around that time. So I started to cut each installment from 1,500 to 2,000 words, like I said, down to 350 to 800 words. Just chopping them down to the basic, everything became super tight, focused, as few words as possible, because I was trying to get you on your mobile device to go as quickly as you possibly could, because otherwise you'd probably bail and not read the rest of the story. So I'm cutting out more than half of the story at this point in time, like I'm just chopping it to pieces. Um, and then, after that is when we decided, now we've got the, the story as a complete story, let's now release it as a novel. So the first edition of Time Slingers came out in 2012, um, and it was actually a very meaningful thing because it was a few months after my mom passed away. Hmm. So for me, it was like this, the Writer's Digest comments about it being like uh, having a place in literary history yeah. were really meaningful at that time because it added some positivity to a situation where I wasn't necessarily real positive, right? Um, and I think that's why it's considered innovative. When people make that comment on a lot of the reviews, I think it's because of the process we went through to get it to where it's at. You, so you might see it and you might go like, oh, it's a novel. And it is a novel, but it didn't start that way. It started with us going, how do we solve problems to get this story into the hands of people who will be more likely to read it and more likely to ingest it quickly? Um, and that's kind of how it, how it took, took shape. An old idea, newspaper serials, adapted to a mobile audience that turned into a novel. Um, and I think it makes it really perfect for Kindle and smartphone reading yeah. even today, which is cool. So. Sure. You talked about how hard it was to balance writing it with your full-time job. Oh, yeah. So conventional wisdom would say that you choose a simple topic to write on, right? You chose <laughs> yeah. time travel. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why choose time travel? You know, I, I don't, so I, I'm, I was reflecting on this today, and I think that I'm not exactly sure why I chose it, but I will say that time travel <coughs> is really fascinating to me, and it because the concept of time travel oftentimes addresses two really big deals. One is the concept of destiny, or predestination, if you will. Um, are things supposed to work out a certain way? and why are they supposed to work out that way? Mm -hmm. um, or can you go back and change them, right? Or what does it look like in the future and are there different paths to something? Are there, are there different timelines? How does that work? Is there another me doing something else right now? Is there a multiverse or is there not a multiverse, right? And also I think that you have that as a plot device but you also have as a human emotion, we have an inherent desire to change past hurts, right, wrongs, um, look ahead to predict the future. Oh, that's very human. So you have a really interesting plot device, but you also have a very human way of addressing the plot device. Yeah. Um, so I think that there's this, this, there's this combined, our need for escapism in some of our stories, but also the deeper thinking prompted in that escapism, in that form of escapism, 
So it's kind of an awesome as a, as a gimmick. Now I will say it's just most of the time because you also have to create a giant set of rules. It's complex as heck. <laughs> super complex. And that requires a very detailed con conceptual framework. Um, and you cannot break your own rules. Because as soon as you break your own rules, everybody knows it and they're like, this is messed up. You broke your own rules and that's not the way it's supposed to go down. Um, and I will say that that's really, really hard to do. And that's where I give shout outs to Nathan because Nathan is really good at taking uh, like complex ideas and complex logical structures and calling me on it when I totally break it. <laughs> so, so uh, which is inherent because in the writing, you know, you're just putting stuff on paper going like, what's next? Oh, it's this crazy idea. And he's like, well, you can't. I mean, like, yeah, okay, but that's, you just broke 10 rules. I was like, okay, fine. Yeah. So, yeah. You can't do it. You can't do it. Um, well, since it's a time travel story, it, re it revolves around the concept of moving through history, which I know you're kind of a history buff too. Yeah. And um, so uh, talk about the time periods that are in this. We have Los Alamos National Labs. We have the JFK assassination, the Apollo program, yeah. all kind of linked together in a real cool sort of Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter sort of way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so well, I think the first, first rule of being a, a time travel author is that you have to have... JFK assassination yeah. addressed in your, in your book. <laughs> That's the rule. It's just the standard. Um, so most of the places in the past are based on places that I've been. Not obviously in that time zone, <laughs> in that time horizon. But uh, I think the, the most interesting, I'll tell a little story about this. The most interesting place was probably Los Alamos National Laboratories. Um, now, how many of you guys know, have ever heard of the Los Alamos National Laboratories? Yeah, a few of you guys have heard of it. It's a place in uh, just, I guess would be north of uh, Albuquerque. It's in New Mexico. And it is where our nation, at the time, 2008, when I went there, our nation stored a third of our plutonium at Los Alamos National Laboratories. So it's not a place that many of you could just go, go to. You can't just go there, right? But my wife was friends with somebody who was a detective for the Albuquerque City Police Department. And he, he, we were at his house and we're talking to him and he goes, he goes, my buddy has been really bugging me to do a behind the scenes tour of Los Alamos National Laboratories. I have not been able to do it. You guys are in town, kind of a cool thing. Do you want to do it? And he was like, yes, please. So we pull up. They take our cell phones. We have to stay in his vehicle. Uh, there are random what they call bear cats, which is sort of like a Humvee um, on like like treaded big treaded tires with like missile launchers on top, just sitting around. Like so, when you're driving around this place, it is the birthplace of our uh, of the Manhattan Project, essentially, right? So there's areas of this place where you literally you literally have fallout where like no one can go in there. Oh yeah, by the way, we had to wear. Uh, monitors that would tell us if we were getting radiation poisoning. Um, so, so we're driving around in this guy's car and he's telling us all these stories. Over there is where a guy dropped, uh, he, was, he was carrying cubes of, I think it was probably uranium at the time, and he was carrying uh, radioactive, and these guys didn't know what they were doing, so they weren't wearing like hazmat suits, right? Not like today. So and they go, this guy was, like, he was creating this giant uranium, uh, like, uh, I'm, I'm, for those of the podcast listeners, I'm describing a cube and he's putting these little cubes into this bigger cube, and he drops one of them and creates a nuclear reaction and just completely eradicates himself, right? So this is the kind of place we're driving around, 
And there's just the, and it's just kind of this surreal environment where they're like, back there is where a third of our nation's plutonium is stored. And you're like, plutonium, that's what you use to make nuclear weapons. That's insane. It's behind that wall. Yeah, okay. I feel like you guys need some more security. It's what I feel like. Um, so uh, it was a really, really cool tour, a really special tour. You'll notice that um, in the beginning, one of the beginning episodes, actually the very first episode of Time Slingers, we do a story where the XLS is trying to get information from the Los Alamos National Laboratories. And they set off the alarm, they have to run out, but the building they're in, I think they called it the Emerald Building, it is this glass building with like a kind of a green glass, right? So that's why they call it the Emerald Building. And inside is where we are, where we're developing the nation's newest, latest, and greatest weapons. Um, so DARPA, I think, works out of there a lot too, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and they pump classical music as loud as they can throughout that building because they don't want people pointing audio devices at it and being able to hear conversations that are going on inside. Um, it is also the place, uh, the, uh, one of the places off to the side, um, where when I say the Theoretical Sciences Building, I've driven past the Theoretical Sciences Building. Um, the, the character in the book who is a theoretical scientist is also doing drugs because he told us on the tour, a lot of those guys do a lot of drugs because they're trying to figure out, basically that's where they're trying to think of how to do time travel today. Wow. So that place is insane, and I felt like I had to put it in a book. And I told the guy too, I was like, can I take notes and like put this in a book? He's like, yeah, sure, go ahead. I'm like, okay, <laughs> sounds good. So, uh, so Los Alamos National Laboratories is really special to me. I've been to downtown Dallas uh, four times. Um, and seeing the place where Kennedy was assassinated. I've been to Cape Canaveral, Kennedy Space Center, where the Apollo program uh, was uh, you know, housed. I have not been to the moon or to Russia. And those are two locations. I know, I just, I need, it's, on my, it's on my bucket list. Um, but I will say this, I'll give you guys a little fact. For those of you who read it, you'll know this already. But for those of you who haven't read it, uh, I have part of the story takes place in 2019 in Russia. And I wrote this in 2008. I did not know that Russia was going to be in the news constantly in 2019. Um, that was not a thing. I don't have a time machine myself. Uh, so that was, kind of, that was kind of crazy and kind of creepy. But that's, this just inspiration comes from me visiting places and going, this is really fascinating. And then just learning a little bit more about that. I would download the schematics for the Apollo program, by the way. I would download everything. Because mm. all that stuff is free to the public now. I would download all the schematics and go over them and be like, Where, what failed here? What failed there? Why did this work? Why did that work? Et cetera. And you went to Nuremberg recently, too. So That might show up Even in darker story stories yet to come? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I was in Nuremberg, and that's a trippy place because they still have, uh, they have this giant concrete building where the Nazi Congress was going to be. And, you, and it... They did not build that building to be friendly, man. They built that building to, to, so you would be instantly scared looking at it. Yeah. And guess what? You are instantly scared looking at that thing. It's not, it's not good. And then we drove past the, you know, have you ever seen that? You guys should look this up because it's like a big moment <coughs> in U.S. history or world history. But when the U.S., there was, a, there was a giant swastika on top of the platform where they would run uh, their parades, their big Nazi war parades that were, when they were kind of like, you know, you'd see Hitler up in the pedestal just yelling at people. Yeah. Um, and they used to have this giant gold swastika on top of that area, and the U.S. pulled it down when we when we finally got to that to Nuremberg. We just yanked it down. There's video of it, and uh, 
It's a creepy place. It is a creepy, creepy place. You're looking at that going, they did a lot of things here that we as a human race need to be real shameful of. So yeah. maybe in a future story. Time Slingers 2. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Uh, well, this is a version of the Story Geeks podcast. It is a version, yeah. <clears throat> which means we have to dig deep into this stuff. Yes. So in a spoiler-free fashion, yeah. um, what are the deep themes here? What's driving the story? What are the questions we should be asking after we read this? It's super weird to ask this about myself. I know. On a podcast that we started in 2016, on a story that I started in 2008. Right? Because I wasn't thinking that I was going to do these podcasts about these things. Yeah. Like, it didn't occur to me at the time. Um, I think that the biggest thing when I look back on it, uh, and maybe you, guys, maybe you guys would agree with this. I don't know if you guys, uh, for those of you who have read the, read the novel. Um, tribalism is really inherent in this story. What I mean by tribalism is the concept that we choose the people that we feel like are most like us and who we want to be most around, and then we call that our tribe. And then our tribe, oftentimes, when we're in disagreement with other tribes, especially ideological differences, we, uh, we start to fight, we start to get fearful of them taking our space, and then it starts to cause all of these problems. Um, and I, and I'll, to, give, to unpack that a little bit more, um, I, I was thinking about a lot at this question at the time when I started writing Time Slingers. If I had been in America in the late 1700s, how would I feel about the American Revol- Revolution, right? If you were in, the 19, in 1775, right, before we started to declare independence and have our, our fight, uh, how would you feel about the American Revolution? And I was thinking about that, this is shortly after 9-11, terrorism is a big concern in 2005 through 2008, mm-hmm. um, and the question starts to become in your mind like, would England have seen the US as a bunch of terrorists? Mm-hmm. I don't know that there's a one-to-one comparison there, I'm not necessarily trying to make a one-to-one comparison there, I'm not calling our founding fathers terrorists, <laughs> if you want to call them that, we can have that discussion and I'd be happy to. Um, but when you look at the setup for Time Slingers, you have a protagonist who has a goal, and that's Marcus Klein. You can ask, and many people wonder, like, who's the, who am I supposed to be rooting for here, right? Like, what am I supposed to be doing? Well, Marcus Klein, is he a freedom fighter or is he a terrorist? Yeah. He definitely works with some people. The first episode has a guy who definitely is a terrorist. But he's also fighting against a totalitarian government. This is a global government that is saying globally you're gonna operate under these rules. Um, and so what does that even mean? What does that look like? When you look at the Union Subdivision Time Slingers, who would on the surface be the good guys, they seem cool, but they're also working for the totalitarian government. And there's some indications that the people running the totalitarian government have some shady things going on too, right? So, uh, and then to top that off, there's another sub-question that I wanted to ask, which is, How does tribalism show up when we throw in a family member? Mm. And there's this this part of the story where we're wondering if somebody's related to somebody else. And now that person has to choose, is it my country or is it my family? Do I choose family, do I choose country? What do I choose, what do I hold my value system and why do I hold that value system? What's, What's important to me to do? And I'm not actually trying to, you know, I'm not trying to answer this for you. What tribe do you choose? 
When you wake up in the morning, what tribe do you choose and why do you choose that tribe? I don't have any idea what your life is like and what you're choosing, um, but I think it's an important question for, to at least ask. And I don't think, I mean, you guys, can, you guys can come back at me and be like, oh yeah, I think that Time Slingers uh, promotes a particular perspective. And I would tell you that it's not necessarily trying to. It's more trying to get you to think through what are the implications of the world around us and how we deal with information. So, and, and at the same time, I just want you to have a really good time, <laughs> right? Like, I just want you to have a lot of fun and be able to go, I had a lot of fun reading this. It made me question some things, and now I get to move on, but I really enjoyed doing that. And then hopefully we get to have a conversation either like this or like we're about to have when we open it up for questions yeah. where we get to talk a little bit more about these things. So it's just really fun for me. Yeah. And it makes sense, too, because if you guys have ever heard other episodes of our show, of the Story Geeks, he finds a way to talk about tribalism in almost every episode, no matter what we're talking yeah. about. So. And we have a bunch of guests, too. Michael's been a guest. Megan's been a guest. Who else has been a guest? Kate's been a guest. Yeah, Kate's been a guest, absolutely, with costuming. Nathan's been a yeah, guest Jack was a slash guest. host. Nathan's, Nathan is a super reluctant guest. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes, sometimes we, we, make him, we make him be on the show. So. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, it's your guys' turn. Yeah. If you have any questions for Jay about Time Slingers... I have these tiny little Story Geeks Frisbees. They're actually stickers. <laughs> and I will fling one at you if you ask a question. So, I can't guarantee I'm going to hit you. Oh! Nice. Well done. <laughs> Daryl actually hit, hit someone. So that's, yeah. that's the... Yeah. Jay, for sci-fi to be believable, the technology now, you kind of tip your hand. Mm. You've got a, a secret genius. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> but the technology has to... Work. It's got to make sense. It's got to be. Yeah. It's got to be believable. Right. So talk about how you make because it is believable in time slayers. Yeah. So the so question real, is yeah, real quick, just for the listeners to repeat that question because you probably couldn't hear them really well. How do you make the tech believable? Yeah. How do you make the tech believable? Okay. So here's a trick. Here's a trick for anybody out there who wants to be a writer. You're never gonna get it perfect. If you put uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, famous scientist Neil deGrasse Tyson, in a room and say, hey, develop a really compelling thing to talk about in regards to time travel. He will tell you, now he's an entertaining guy, so verbally in his speech, he might tell you a really cool, interesting thing. But the reality is, when you try to input that science into your film, or your book, or your whatever, it will probably not be that compelling. <laughs> So the first thing you need to do is you need to set up rules for how the world works, and then you need to tell people what that looks like. Today, uh, the way that time travel works in Time Slingers is that we, we break down a person's molecular structure, turn them into a group of atoms, and then we take them through a wormhole, and then rebuild that group of atoms somewhere else, right? Um, that brings up its own deep questions, like does your soul transfer with that? Does, do you have a soul? <laughs> do, how does that work, right? Um, obviously we don't dive into that, but, uh, but if you want to, hey, I'm game. Um, but, uh, so we have to then explain that in a way that you believe it. That might be the most BS science that has ever existed <laughs> in the history of mankind. But, it, but the, the point is, if you set up the rules in such a way that someone goes, okay, I'll play by those rules, then I think you win, right? What you don't win is when you try to, is when you try to be, you can either be do, do, do two things. 
You can either not set up any rules. That's a huge problem, red flag, because as soon as you, you'll start to break your own patterns if you have no rules. So I don't recommend that at all. The other way you can kind of do it is you can just say like Back to the Future, one of the best time travel stories of all time, in my opinion, you can just say, we're just gonna have a lot of fun with it and the actual science isn't gonna matter. We're gonna transfer ourselves through time in a DeLorean. It's like, okay, fine. It's just fun. We'll just go with it. Um, so I think some of that depends on how you play with it, you know, and different people have played with it in different ways um, and to, to differing results. But I think as long as, you've, as long as you set up the rules, the rules aren't completely ludicrous, I think you can get away with it. So I think that's kind of how it works, at least in my mind. Yeah. We have another story coming out. Uh, Megan actually was in the story. Um, so when she comes out, because we have a full cast audio book coming out where a character has a giant Gatling gun for an arm. I don't know how he puts ammo in that Gatling gun. <laughs> like, I don't know how, that, how, that, how he makes that thing spin besides what we would call like some sort of form of magic. But, uh, but it's cool. But it's cool, so <laughs> why not do it? Why not throw it in there? That's a great question. That's a really good question. All right, Megan, I'm gonna try to get this to you. Oh, pretty close, pretty close. Yeah. Being, uh, somebody to hold you accountable in order to get pages done. Yeah. Um, do you have any, since you're talking to aspiring writers, yeah. do you have any advice for people who might be experiencing writer's block or need their own form of accountability? Oh, that's good. So the question for the listeners is, um, do you have any advice for writers who are dealing with writer's block or balancing writing with the rest of life? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, okay, so the first thing is, especially, so I would say the first thing is you have to figure out how to make it a priority. If it's not a priority at all, then it just never will be a priority, right? Like, there's got to be, you've got to figure out, you know, um, now, I would say you need to be realistic with whatever priority you decide on. So if you say, I'm going to spend 10 hours a week writing, and that's a ridiculous priority for you, don't set that because you'll never achieve it and you'll be constantly beating yourself up that you even tried to do it. So in my opinion, like if you, if you even say, I'm going to write for an hour a day or I'm going to write for an hour a week, right? At least you can schedule that time, prioritize that time. Um, maybe you adjust it every now and again, but you kind of dedicate time to it. So that's the first thing. Just get time on the calendar. Um, partner with other people. Get, a, get into a writing group where, they, where you know, they'll say, everybody's got to have five pages by next week. Well, you don't want to be the guy who shows up without five pages, right? Like, um, and so that will hold you accountable there. Um, now, getting past writer's block, okay, so several things to get past writer's block. One, sometimes you just have to do bad work. Like, you have to sit down at a table and pound out bad work and then be like, that's awful. And you just be like, okay, well, that didn't work, right? One of the things that um, I learned in doing a lot of startup type stuff, especially like tech startup stuff, was try and fail and then learn why it failed. And that's a lot of times what happens with writing. You try something, and then I show it to Nathan, and Nathan goes, yeah, that's not, that's not gonna work. And I go, oh yeah, it's not gonna work. And then it forces you to go back, and your mind automatically kicks in with, well then how can I make it work? And so now you're getting past your writer's block in that way. The other two recommendations I'd make for writer's block are uh, get out of your comfort zone and go do something different. Um, like you hear from, from my stuff, I like to travel. 
So that is a prompt for me to get like really creative ideas. Like, oh, this is this area is really fascinating to me because of this thing. And I go, okay, that's really interesting. That may relate not at all to the story that I'm writing, but it still is creatively charging me to do something else. Um, and then the third thing uh, is to, to uh, be involved in other people's stories in some way because you will get inspiration from other people all the time. Um, we were, so I'll give you a really, so Death of a Bounty Hunter is the next book that's coming out next year. It's gonna be a full cast audio book, it's awesome. Megan is a voice actor in that. Um, and in that book, uh, it is, we, I, I, again, I released it a while back as a shorter story. And I got feedback on it. I started getting strangers who I did not know who would give me feedback. I read it, this is my feeling about it. And a lot of people started to say, yeah, it's, it's weird, it's interesting, but you could have taken it farther. And then I started reading some other weird Westerns, right? Like steampunk type stuff. And I'm like, oh yeah, this stuff gets pretty crazy. Like it gets pretty wild. And that inspired me to go like, how would I push the envelope even more? And then I, then I started going through that process. So it's that I think that when you, uh, I, did see, I did see a character with a gun for an arm the other day. And I was like, oh, you're kidding me. You weren't the first one. <laughs> I wasn't the first one to think of it. But, um, but so you, you just get inspiration from other people's work. And I think that that's really powerful because there's so many good storytellers out there. And your story is probably not the same as theirs. And you're probably approaching it from a different perspective. But there's just enough there to go like, oh, I could do this other thing with this other character. And that's really rewarding and cool. So, yeah, that's a great question. Anybody else? Steve. Whoa! Oh, dude, that, was, that was coming at 100 miles okay. an hour, dude. We almost... uh, so, uh, range of characters in the book. Yeah. Uh, which character did you enjoy writing the most and which was the hardest? Ooh. Okay. So the question is, which character did you enjoy writing the most and which was the hardest? Okay, so this is, this is a really hard question for me. They say that you show up in all of your characters in some way, shape, or form. Like you yourself has a form of your personality shows up in a character. And I think to a certain extent that that's really true. I uh, really enjoy writing for Marcus Klein because he is inherently in a situation that causes him to have hourly compromises. And that's really interesting to me because if you are a freedom fighter, how far will you go? Um, and even if you have a righteous goal in mind, which I think Marcus Klein does have a righteous goal in his mind. But we're all the hero in our own mind, even if we turn out to be the villain to other people. And so the question is, how, what, what does that look like? So I really enjoy writing for Marcus Klein. It's, it's like some people have said like, you seem to like Marcus Klein a lot and I don't feel like he's a villain. And I go, yeah, because I don't know that anybody, my personal viewpoint on that is that not, there's nobody in this room that is completely a hero or completely a villain. You have elements of, all, of both of those things. You don't, you're not perfect, therefore you can't be a, a, a hero through and through, but you also don't necessarily want to be a villain, you want to be a hero, so you have a little bit of both elements, right? Um, so I like writing for Marcus Klein. Uh, I also really liked writing for, um, I really liked writing for General Falco. Um, I really liked writing for, uh, yeah, I'm forgetting their names now too. It's just weird. There's too many. I'm working on too many stories right now. Um, I really liked writing for Jessica Prentice. 
Uh, I really liked writing for um, Alexandra. So it's hard for me to choose one. Um, there's just so many that are fascinating to me. But yeah, yeah, I think if I had to choose one, Marcus Klein would be my top. The most difficult to write for. I think anytime you're writing a character that is not inherently who, who you are, it's harder. So if I try to write with female voice, that's more difficult. I have to go, I have to go study that more, right? To do it justice. Because the last thing you want to do is misrepresent something or someone. And so in order to do that justice, you have to work a little harder at it to, un to really understand where that character's coming from and why. Uh, and not to stereotype them as well, which is, uh, a, which is a really hard thing. So uh, those can be more difficult for sure. Good question. Should we do uh, two more questions? Sure. Two more questions? You're way back there, Joe. Joe Zapata. Uh, oh. <laughs> I hit your dad. Yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> so you talk about, like, tribes, and you talk about, like, how you're basically, like, having people choose. Yeah. But you push the characters to where, like, they're breaking the rules. Yeah. And even, like, being basically, like, self-sacrifice. Yeah. So how, like, how do you go from one extreme to another? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm going to repeat it. I don't, know, I don't know how to summarize that. It was too good. <laughs> yeah, say it one more time so we can get it, like, perfect. Okay, so Come up here and say it. No, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then answer it, too, if you want mind. <laughs> so how do you take your, the tribe or tribalism that, that you were talking about, yeah. but then push it to where the character is basically having to choose yeah. between what's good for them and what they want for the person that they're trying to work with? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. That's good. So talk about tribalism. Yeah. And talk about how it forces characters to choose between themselves and other people they're working with. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I'm going to use an example from another story that I think does this in an exemplary fashion. Um, and you probably all have seen it. But I think that, that Black Panther, the film, is extraordinary when it comes to this kind of question. The kind of question that says... We are inherently for our tribes, but there is our character is at stake. Because if we push it too far or we start to infringe upon the rights and or safety and or um, well-being of another person in another tribe, what are we becoming? Um, and so I think that that's the approach, right? That's the, that's, the, that's the concept, is to say, is to say you have a character like T'Challa who starts out by saying, I understand that Wakanda has resources, but I don't want to step onto the world stage because I want my tribe to thrive, even if that costs other people something. And then you have a character like Killmonger who basically says, no, tribes are being infringed upon across the world and I'm going to go fight for them. Um, and I love it because the character who expresses, I think, the viewpoint that the storytellers are trying to get across as the best viewpoint is actually uh, Nakia. Because Nakia says from the very beginning, I am a part of Wakanda and Wakanda has resources that can be used external to Wakanda. And we should do that. Um, not to oppress other people, but to benefit other people. And it is T'Challa's journey, Black Panther's journey, to understand and realize what that looks like. So that is tribe, 
individual, how do I deal with the world around me with the focus on both my tribe and benefiting my tribe, but also benefiting other people, and I'm going to have to sacrifice my character, in, or do I have to sacrifice my character to, to get there? And I think that those are, by definition, some of the most interesting stories. If stories are, as neuroscience tells us, the, brain, the way the brain works to understand and interpret the world around us, not data. Like I can give you all the data in the world. If I tell you a story, you might change your life, right? If that's true, then the constant questioning of the way that we're going about our daily lives to try and change for the better, what does hope look like? What does joy look like? What does despair look like? What is, those are the things that are encapsulated in story. And I think it's the duty of the writer to bring those things up and test them. Scott Derrickson is the director of, uh, Scott Derrickson directed Dr. Strange. And he said something on Twitter that my first response was like, oh, is that true? And I thought more about it and I'm like, yeah, I think it's really true. He said, I don't think a writer should start with a message in mind, but rather should start with a concept or wanting to explore a particular concept and then continually break that down till you understand it at the fullest extent you can and then start to put that on a page. And I think that if you start with a message in mind, you start by creating propaganda. If you start by trying to explore an issue and all the nuances of that issue and all the different sides of that issue, then you get to the question of what is going on here? How is it shaping my view of the world? How is that view of the world then shaping my actions? And now you have really compelling characters. Characters with goals and needs and wants fears and hopes and despair, and you, they're well-rounded. So I think that uh, you have to figure out what issue are we dealing with, why are we dealing with that issue, and then you have to take the due diligence of diving into that issue so that you at least understand it from multiple viewpoints other than just your own, because you're going to approach it with a bias, and you've got to break down that bias and then figure out what really is going on there. And uh, so does that answer the question? <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Hopefully. One more. One more question. Right. Michael. You're pretty good at tossing these stickers. What can I say? Daryl is tossing stickers at people. He almost has taken a few eyes out, but otherwise he's, he's great. <laughs> so you've been working on this for a while. Yeah. When was the moment when you knew you had? Oh, man. So the question was, when was the moment that you knew you had the story? Because you worked on it for so long. So this is a, this is a weird answer, but... Um, I am never satisfied with my stories. <laughs> it's why we released part portions of it in 2008. It's 11 years later, um, and it's a completely different format. I do not think that... Um, I think there's always ways to improve. Uh, I think that there are always nuances that when you read your story, you're like, oh, yeah, that could have been done better. That could have been a little bit different. So it's more, about, it's more about when do I learn that it has resonated with another person, okay? So even if I'm not completely satisfied with it because it's just hard for me to be satisfied with it, when, when is there another person who goes, oh, I really liked what you had to say there. You really entertained me in this way, shape, or form. Then I know that I'm onto something, right? So it's really the audience that I'm connecting with um, that is more than anything that, that makes me go, okay, I think I have something here. Uh, and, then, and then trying to understand where they're coming from with that. 
when, when I had people start to tell me, um, I didn't know exactly who I was supposed to root for. I went, yes, I have something there because I don't know who to root for either. <laughs> and I know when to root for certain characters because I know like that character I want to root for now. But then this other character who's actually opposing that character, now I want to root for them because that's the complexity of the issue, right? We don't always... We don't always, we, sometimes we just want to be escapists and be like, Superman's perfect, and let's just root for him. Sometimes that's true. But a lot of times we want to root for Batman. Well, Batman beats people up. How far does Batman have to beat somebody up before you're like, wait a minute, that's not okay anymore. And now I want to wrestle with that, right? So, uh, yeah, I don't know that I'm ever satisfied or, or, or that I have something, but until the audience that I'm trying to reach goes, I really like what you did there. And then I go, okay, cool. Then we're on, uh, we're on to something then. Um, I think with Time Slingers, it took a lot longer. Uh, with Death of a Bounty Hunter, it actually came, came about faster. And part of that is including more people in your creative process. So we have a full cast of, uh, I don't know how many people we have, seven, between seven and ten people. I keep counting and then I lose, I lose track again. Um, but, and when, when I see them light up, and when I see them go, I love what this character just did. It's crazy, but I love it. Or when they say something like, oh my gosh, this character is insane. I go, yeah, and that's, that's, that's something about, we have a character that is super villainous in this upcoming story. And the actor who plays that character uh, does a form of method. So we record in our little studio. <laughs> it's like nine by 11. And I actually remember Megan is sitting across from this guy. And this guy is awesome. He's awesome, but he's method. So he's sitting in front of Megan, who's the nicest person in the world. And he's, he's like, he'll even, he'll even sit there and, and, and hit himself to get like, because this character is super aggressive. Much more aggressive than this actor is in real life. And so he'll just get, he'll get real intense. And the coolest thing was when I found that the actor, because the character has a motivation that is partially skewed incorrectly and partially skewed to help someone else in his life out, um, that complexity of that character made this actor go, I know how to dig into this emotion. I know how to play this scene, not only as super angry, but angry because I'm scared. Angry because I have this other person that I'm trying to take care of that I need to take care of. Um, and then that, I, th if, if I get that from a person, whether it's an audience member, uh, a customer, or whether it's the actor who's playing the role, or actress who's playing the role, that's when I know I'm onto something. Because I'm like, they get it, they get it. They understand what this character's trying to do. And a lot of times, once they start to get a good picture of that, then I might even see the, the, um, the uh, actor in a clearer way and be like, dude, that's amazing. Like, now I see, even see this character more completely, so. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Cool. That's it. Well, if you have more questions, just come talk to him and ask him. <laughs> that is it for today's show. If you have questions for me after hearing about Time Slingers, please send me an email at thestorygeeks at gmail.com. Special thanks again to Daryl Smith and everyone in our live audience for being a part of the podcast. As I mentioned, we're closing out our X-Men serial this week. So be sure to check out last week's episode where we ranked every single X-Men movie, including the two Deadpools. And then coming up next week, we dig deeper into the last Fox-centric film since Disney's taken over, Dark Phoenix. Subscribe on your preferred podcast provider to make sure you don't miss any upcoming shows. 
If you enjoy the Story Geeks podcast, please share our show with a geek friend or review the Story Geeks podcast on Apple Podcasts. And please consider purchasing and reviewing Time Slingers. I would be incredibly grateful to you for that. Thanks for listening. And as always, question everything in your favorite geek stories and always seek the truth. Special thanks to these amazing people who help us produce the Story Geeks podcast by supporting us on Patreon. Anthony Holder, Adam Vargas, Bob Sherfield, Brianna, Bryce Cox, Connie Moe, Jessica Pritchett, Jim and Mary Baldwin, Joshua Beckham, Jeremy and Kimberly Lujeau, Julian Armstrong, Monty Thigpen, new supporter Nathan Miller, Nick Prokop, Ray DeLeon, new supporter Rondell Dobard, Samuel Pelokin, and Wade Johnson. To gain access to our aftercasts and unlock more Patreon rewards, or just to support the show, please head on over to thestorygeeks.com for more information.